As you continue to soak in the music, our children K through two will be dismissed now to children's worship. Don't you love that? <laughs> Nearly 50 years ago, I was just out of seminary, thought I was equipped to be a pastor. I look back now and say I was mostly just young and dumb. One day, one of the church's leaders, a deacon and a prosperous businessman with his own tire store, told me of something that happened in his life. He told me that there's a piece of equipment in his tire store that was faulty and extremely dangerous, and he'd been told to fix it. And he did not, and it remained dangerous. And one day, a little black boy wandered in and they paid no attention. And his curiosity led him to that dangerous machine and the machine killed him. This white Baptist deacon told me that his first call was to his lawyer who advised him on the phone to go to the bank and take out $101 bills and to come by and pick him up. And together they rode to the home of the parents of the little boy who was killed. And then they told them what had happened. Then they told the lawyer said how sorry he was and that this white Baptist deacon wanted to make it right. And they flashed that big wad of bills. And the lawyer said, if you just sign this paper right here, And the Baptist deacon went back to his life, sent his own kids to college, enjoyed the respect of a community, participated in the clubs and his leadership role in the local Baptist church. A black mom and dad went home with only a wad of bills that would never cover their child's funeral and they went home with no child. When I heard this, I was just stunned. I didn't know what to say. And I didn't say anything. And to this day, I so regret my silence. Oh, I know now what I'd say, and I know how I would say it. But that doesn't change 50 years ago. I know several people who found their courage and their voice and told their parents they were gay or bi or lesbian or transgender, only to meet with harsh judgment 
and siblings who belittled them and never had anything to do with them, or parents who threw them out with nothing, and churches that judged them harshly, and they had to make their own way in life. I remember my friend Harvest, a black man who moved his family to the all-white town where we were in Missouri. And I asked him how that was going for him, and he told me how whenever they went to a store, either a clerk or a store detective would follow them around everywhere they went, acting as if they were there simply to steal. And he told me that though he visited several churches, no minister called and asked him to come back or invited them to membership. Only our church. And last week, the police were called on a nine-year-old black girl who was killing flies on the sidewalk because the white man across the street said she was making him afraid. Why am I saying these things? What do these have to do with anything? What do they have to do with our text today? The text I read has been much abused, like it's some kind of crystal ball where we can tell when the end of time will be. They overlook an inconvenient fact. It was written after these things happened, not before. It's like me predicting that the Houston Astros will win the World Series. Early Christians had already been beaten and arrested and imprisoned and murdered and disowned. The issue for the bloodied believers was how do I live faithfully in the cruel circus that my life has become? How do I live in this present where that cruel circus continues? Last week I was part of the Highland group that made pilgrimage, civil rights pilgrimage to Montgomery, Alabama, and then on to the Legacy Museum and the Peace and Justice Museum and on to Selma for a guided tour. A tour of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and the rest of Selma were in 1965, which is called Bloody Sunday, where the civil rights marchers seeking only their basic human rights were bloodied and beaten. In one of the places we visited, the words of Maya Angelou were on the wall. Maya Angelou, who was poet laureate in the United States, who's now who now has books that are banned from some places. She wrote these words. You'll find them on your bulletin cover. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, need not be lived again. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Our history is replete with wrenching pain. Oh, there are good parts to our history, beautiful parts to our history. But we do the beautiful parts a disservice by not looking at the ugly parts. We're a nation that deprived people of voting rights. Even in the last couple of years, 200 bills have been introduced into legislatures nationwide aimed specifically at preventing black people from voting. Oh, they've dressed it up in language, but that's its purpose. 
The abandonment of young people who come out as anything other than heterosexual still goes on. The murder of black people at Bible studies or just walking home wearing a hoodie still goes on. Separating children from their parents on the auction block of slavery or at our border goes on. This kind of list of our own historical ugliness could go on and on. And we're not surprised that some people are afraid that we'll actually read about these things. And so they ban books. I don't know about you, but I grew up on a history of legends and myths and the sanitized history that I was taught in high school. Never heard a word about the struggle of African Americans just to attain some kind of basic dignity. And facing all this requires courage so that we can work to prevent it from happening again. And I know some may say, I wasn't born guilty. Well, neither was I. Nobody here was born guilty. I was born with opportunity to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. And the Old Testament prophets said, that's all God requires. And the words of Jesus define what it means to live authentically in this passage that I read, to live in this moral circus. And I would start by noting there's no word of judgment here because the people who lived through these difficult times surely failed from time to time, surely didn't live up to the things they knew, surely look back and, like me, feel a great deal of regret. But Jesus said, these times will give you the opportunity to testify. Ida Wells, who was a leader and a leading voice in the civil rights movement, wrote these words. The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Jesus goes on to say not to prepare in advance, and some people take this way too literally. I can tell you the ministers of this church prepare to stand in this spot. I had a minister of youth in my church in Missouri, and we were going to have a youth emphasis on a Sunday where I imagined it just a portion of the service. He wanted the whole service. So being the lazy pastor that I was, I said, sure, I won't have to write a sermon. I should have monitored him. It's another one of my ministerial regrets in life. After a couple of hymns, he called on the young people to stand up wherever they were and just give their testimony. A lot of young people looked like so many deer caught in the headlights. They weren't prepared. He'd never said a word to them. Shortest service in the history of that church. not preparing in advance is totally not what this is about. Jesus is saying that in the midst of the dangerous lives you had, in the midst of this dangerous turmoil, you have survived and you have your own unique life experience. You've learned how to live faithfully. You've come through the danger. Tell your story and it will resound with truth. When our civil rights pilgrimage took us to Selma, Alabama, our tour guide was a woman named Joanne Bland. How could I possibly describe Joanne Bland? 
a force of nature. Take the toughest drill sergeant you ever heard of, and I think he would salute and say, yes, ma'am. She guided our tour and described what took place on Bloody Sunday, 1965, when they tried to march across that bridge and then on to Montgomery. They were ambushed on both ends of the bridge. She was nine years old. She showed us historic places where the civil rights leaders stood. She told how the marchers were pursued even into churches where they thought they would find sanctuary, but their persecutors chased them in there, threw a woman down the stairs, broke the arms of a man. The beatings continued even in the sanctuary. It's one thing to read these words or even to hear a white preacher say it. It's another thing to hear it in the voice of one who was there and who is forever marked by the trauma and violence of that day. In the midst of renewed racism today, she tells her story and it rings with truth. She shines the light of her own true experience on an ugly part of our history. She takes the opportunity to testify. And Jesus said, I will give you wisdom, the wisdom born of pain that calls us to kindness, the wisdom born of suffering calling us to attend to the things that matter, love and relationships and learning, the wisdom called for when we witness cruelty and know that love must be expanded and cruelty must be called to accountability. Patricia Heaton is a conservative Christian. She says so. She tweets out things all the time. She sought to comfort those who dismayed by the election. She was a former TV star on the program Everybody Loves Raymond, and for those of you who are younger, you'll have to Google that. But this is what she tweeted. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. In the midst of great upheaval, Jesus calls us to the wisdom of ever-expanding love. And Jesus said, and by your endurance, you will gain your souls. During our trip to Selma, we had lunch with Joanne Bland and her sister and a man by the name of George Sally, 90-something years old. All had been at the bridge that day in 65. I have a card from George Sally. It describes him as a foot soldier in the voting rights struggle. I'll leave it up here in case somebody wants to see it, but please leave it there for me. I got to speak to him for a few moments, and he took off his cap and showed me the scars from the beating he took on that bridge that day. And then he told me he goes to the Edmund Pettus Bridge every day to pray for those who beat him. His card has a passage on it. If you, give, if you forgive others their trespasses, God will forgive you yours. 
He refuses to be forced to hate. He refuses the right to revenge. And by endurance, he gains his own soul. His very life challenges me. I got a lot of growing up to do to match his faithfulness. How shall we live in our day? Telling our story, the church's story too. Living by the wisdom we've gained. Practicing a soulfulness. The answer for me is both complex and simple. The word is love, and sometimes that's really complex. How do we do that? By faith, we'll figure it out. Last Sunday in this place, we did the funeral for Joe Powell, who grew up in this church. On his wall at the nursing home were these words from Mother Teresa. And I close with this. Mother Teresa wrote, people are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the world your best and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see in the end, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Amen.